Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good afternoon, Team Krulak community. My name is Major Ian Brown. I'm the Operations Officer at the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, University. the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Krulak Center, welcome back to the Broodcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best and in innovative and creative thought. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who can't join us live today. So we ask that you be mindful of keeping your microphones muted to avoid disrupting the presentation, as well as keeping your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. We will have a question and answer following the presentation. So if you have a question, please type it in the chat and I'll call on you in the order I receive them. And we usually try and get you to ask your question directly to our guests so you have a chance to engage. Uh, please indicate in the chat if your device does not support that and I'll ask your question for you. So today we're excited to bring back the very first guest we had on the Brewcast series when we launched it last year, Dr. Christopher C. Harmon, the Krulak Center's Donald Bren Chair of Great Power Competition for Marine Corps University and its foundation. He is the lead author or editor of seven books, and his research into two British archives is reflected in his essay about Churchill called Vision of Victory in World War II magazine published in 2005. He has written on the Allies Coalition Warfare and done a study of area bombing entitled Are We Beasts? The title being a question Churchill put to himself. This month, Dr. Harmon concluded an elective course at Expeditionary Warfare School on Churchill and World War II, and he has taught many related classes at Marine Corps University's Command and Staff College and War College. He serves on the Board of Academic Advisors for the International Churchill Society and has published essays with the Churchill Project at Hillsdale College. He is also on the Board of Advisors for the website Classics of Strategy and Diplomacy. So Dr. Harmon joins us today because March of 2021 marks the 75th anniversary of the Fulton, Missouri Address by Winston Churchill, where Churchill invoked the clattering down of a communist iron curtain across Europe. The British statesman voiced many themes and broad hopes in that address, as he did in speeches and state papers of the years 1944, 1945, and 1946. As examples, he advocated a, quote-unquote, world organization for international security, a formerly unified Europe, and a summit with the Soviet Union. So today, Dr. Harmon will explore what we can learn from those themes in today's world of renewed great power competition. So, Dr. Harmon, over to you, and I'll pull up your slides. Well, thank you, Major, and thank you for everyone else uh, who's joining. Uh, the uh, 75th anniversary this month of the Westminster College, Missouri address by Churchill uh, is indeed a good prompt for this talk. Um, on the 5th of March in 46, with President Harry Truman looking on in Fulton, uh, he made a very important speech that popularized the uh, phrase Iron Curtain, uh, but also really helped refashion Western foreign policy uh, and, and introducing the, the concept of, of containment, although without using that word. Um, there's another reason why it's good to go back and re-examine uh, Churchill's views at the close of World War II, uh, and that is we know more now. Uh, that is, uh, we have uh, a ability to access wonderful primary sources that most uh, readers who couldn't get into archives uh, had not seen before. Uh, Hillsdale College has something called the Churchill Project, which includes uh, the college's president, Larry Arne, Richard Langworth, and others, and they're bringing out the most amazing big set of volumes uh, of primary source documents dating from the war years, the, the, the late war years, and the immediate Cold War period. Uh, this is now part of what's the probably the longest official biography or any biography in the English language, and that about Winston Churchill. So with those two things in mind, I wanted to turn to the dramas of 1944, 45, 46, and take a look at, uh, at, at those, starting with, I think, Churchill's worldviews on, on slide two. Uh, we need to say, of course, uh, otherwise we'd, we'd, we'd lose all credibility, wouldn't we? Uh, that this is a British nationalist we're analyzing. 
Um, there are many today with very strong views against nationalism, uh, and he is, of course, proud of his race, proud of the British nation. Uh, and we see things in a sort of 19th century context when we read him and the views that were different. Uh, the current issue of a very nice little journal called Finest Hour uh, has a cover story on Churchill's views uh, on race and nationality and other issues of great, uh, great interest uh, to modern readers. He was, however, a lot more proud of something else, and that's British legal and political traditions. It was a system he felt effective. Uh, he felt open to talent. It included venerable structures that he really respected. So, for example, a limited monarchy. Uh, the king or queen is the head of state, but, but parliament and its prime minister run the government, and that was a system he believed in uh, very closely. Um, his nationalism is checked as well, we should say, by a kind of internationalism, a passionate attachment to democracy, democratic government wherever it might flourish, uh, representative bodies, uh, the freedoms those assure, uh, procedures and laws that limit the power of any one person. Uh, he was what his father said, a Tory Democrat. He adopted his father's slogan at times. He was a conservative. He was a Democrat. Uh, we see this in a couple interesting ways that are kind of unconventional. Let me mention uh, a letter he wrote to the people of Italy after the death of Mussolini. Uh, he wrote to them urging a return to the fullest folds of freedom. He wanted uh, to mention at least a dozen principles or so in that uh, letter, and it's in fact a fine document. It's a kind of good lesson in civics. We could read this letter from Churchill to the Italians to, to better understand our own freedoms. Uh, if we were in Colombo, Sri Lanka, if we were in San Jose, Costa Rica, if we were in Quantico, Virginia. Um, unfortunately, uh, Americans uh, find it a, a little tedious to teach civics these days. We don't do too much, do we? Um, a second source of his interest and his views on power, which is our focus today, uh, is certainly history. He really felt that history was a wonderful guide and to great depths. Uh, this is a man who's an autodidact. He, he never went to college, but his knowledge of history was remarkable, uh, in part due to a superb memory. So if he was touring U.S. Civil War battlefields, for example, he showed remarkable familiarity with uh, details. He knew Parliament's history very well, and he, and he wrote history, of course, his big multi-series uh, on Marlborough, his great ancestor, is in fact, in one way, a study of coalition warfare, something that he would use and think about every single day during World War II and in the post-war period. Uh, geography, too. Uh, you can't really do poli-sci and international relations without geography uh, any more than you can do physics without math. Churchill was a real hound on geography. Uh, he kept up on it. He gathered up maps. He studied them. Uh, Roosevelt, when he met with him once, was impressed by a kind of traveling map section that Churchill kept. Uh, there was a Captain Pym, his, that was his name, who maintained these maps almost hourly for the disposition of forces around the world in World War II. And Roosevelt liked it so much that he had his own staff create a, a similar thing so that he could uh, repair to his map room and see where things were out there in the world. And so geography is important. Uh, ethics is interesting. Churchill's views of ethics are not necessarily all we'd expect. Uh, they were an essential part of his, his worldview. Uh, they're not derived primarily from religion. Uh, he was a Christian. In fact, he was Episcopalian, uh, but in sort of in light form. He didn't really attend too many services in church. Uh, he was asked once, uh, you know, sir, are you a, a pillar of the church? And he said, well, I'm more like a flying buttress, a supporter from the outside. Um, his ethics were those of a logician and of a very moral person. Uh, there's an interesting anecdote about him from his earlier years. Uh, 
a friend pressed on him a copy of Aristotle's Ethics. He said it was the greatest book he'd ever read, and he wanted Churchill to read it. And so Churchill did so, but then when he returned it, he said something interesting. He said he liked the book, but it, quote, was extraordinary how much of it I had already thought out for myself. Uh, I think that's a thing that very few people would say, but uh, he did, and uh, I expect he was uh, responding uh, honestly to his friend. Um, I did spend a few months once while at the Naval War College studying closely the area bombing campaign, because I believe that was one of the great ethical questions of World War II, and I thought this guy Churchill will be a good guide through those moral thickets and brambles, and uh, he was. He was. So that brings us back to the subject of war, always close to Churchill's mind and heart. Um, for him, human nature was a troubling thing. Uh, men had a tendency to make war, and uh, some of them actually liked war. And once or twice, uh, Winston Churchill himself admitted that as a younger man, uh, he had favored war, too. Uh, he does see it as a kind of continuum in human affairs. And he judges that it comes and will come again, and preparing for it is an absolute necessity. But he does not go further than that. He was, for example, no social Darwinist. There were plenty in his day in the 19th century. Uh, Friedrich von Bernhardi is a very articulate one, a German scholar and, and general uh, who wrote books in English and German prior to World War I. Uh, Churchill was not like that. He didn't think war was inevitable. He didn't like the notion of social Darwinism affecting statecraft. Um, and he did not think, he did not, uh, that war would somehow elevate the human spirit just because it was exciting or that it would somehow improve mankind. He wrote, in fact, that and said, in fact, that uh, intelligent statecraft was all bound up in the notion of preventing wars. And lifelong, his commitment to collective security reflects uh, just that, reflects his worries about human nature and his determination to kind of counteract the worst side of it uh, by being willing to work against war. Now, the next slide's about the state. So what, are, what are Churchill's views on, on the state in general? Uh, he thought the state could be something for ill or good. Uh, he thought the state was something that's definitely reformable. Uh, he believed in, in improving and reforming all the time. Um, as a young minister, for example, he worked hard on prison reform. Uh, he helped David Lloyd George introduce forms of social security into the British uh, government. Uh, he was for a well-designed state, and by that he meant uh, that it would have somewhat limited powers at home. But he also, of course, favored great powers for a state abroad. It should be liberal at home. It should be powerful overseas so as to protect the homeland. I noticed that in, uh, in many of his state papers and books, he's not really very quick to criticize most states in the status quo. He tends to be uh, almost benevolent, usually, unless it's, uh, it's turned into a, a nasty war-making sort of entity. Uh, he was, however, more judgmental uh, about named uh, leaders. He did, he did that frequently. Uh, he was judgmental about the powerful. He held them to a very high standard. And in doing so, in judging power and powerful people, he does say a few things that strike us in, in, in the modern times as, as maybe not being the same thing that a, a leader would say today. A couple of examples. He was quite the fan of Napoleon. He admired him greatly, uh, doubtless in part because of the intelligence of the Napoleonic law code, but also, of course, this is a man who, who conquered Europe, so it sort of gets our attention. Uh, he also was indulgent initially with Benito Mussolini. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, which we could go into in Q&A, uh, but he'll only be a devastating critic of Mussolini a bit later, uh, late in the 20s. Uh, and so those two facts are, are interesting. One thing that he always was clear on and never varied from was that his view of the totalitarian state was seen as profoundly disturbing 
and anti-freedom and, and anti-human. He was a, a fierce critic of, of totalitarianism, whether it was the left or the right, and he often spoke against both, being indifferent. Uh, he despised both extremes. So he jumps parties a few times in his life, but never does he change off that kind of middle-of-the-road conservative view uh, that the violent excesses of left and right were, were evil. In fact, he called them evil twins or the twins of the devil at times. But given the state structure, uh, it could be abused or it could be neglected or it could be ill-served. So one, one theme in his, in his scholarship and his books is definitely that men in power will sometimes fall far short in ability. Uh, in crisis, they may not produce, they, they may not, quote, rise to the level of events, as he liked to put it. And so we recall things like the Munich speech just before World War II, uh, in which he blasted, he just blasted ministers in his own government and its cousin democracies around the world uh, with words that, that seemed to come from the King James Bible that Churchill said, thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. Statesmen had simply not risen to the level of events that those times demanded. Um, in his book, Great Contemporaries, he has many, many fine studies of statesmen, uh, some whom he finds very impressive and some whom he doesn't. Another problem with the state is its mere existence is no prophylactic against war. He always thought that democracies had to be continuously on, 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 on work uh, to, to improve prospects that, that war would not come. Uh, and the problem is built into democracy because a little bit like Karl von Clausewitz, when he looks closely at what mankind can do, he suspects that real forms of evil can pollute the, the popular base, as it were. A people's strengths can be broad, but they can turn in very bad directions. And uh, not all commentators said that or, or believed it. Uh, Many had a way of writing that, you know, the evils of war are all due to, to, to certain idiot princes or selfish sovereigns. Uh, Churchill was not quite so optimistic. He emphasized that in, in democratic and modern times, uh, the wars of the people could be broader and just as vicious as past wars. And in fact, he said frequently that he dreaded how a modern science had given the people, so-called, uh, more power to kill, but not necessarily more wisdom. So those are some of the sources of Churchill's views on power. And now uh, I want to turn in the lecture and go from uh, a, a kind of outward-looking uh, man from London, looking out and seeing uh, first Europe, and then the British Commonwealth, then the Americans, and then the Soviets, and then at the end, we'll turn to his views on the future world organization, because in 44, 45, he's laboring on that almost every day. So, uh, Europe. Uh, certainly, you know, before all else, um, Churchill's schooling in great power politics really comes from watching Europe. Uh, we can say he knew far less about Asia. Uh, he had served in India and Afghanistan as a young officer, but it was the struggles in Europe that absorbed him and on which he was so uh, carefully studying all the time. He traveled a lot in Europe, too. I mean, he'd been in France, for example, dozens of times. He did have respect and knowledge of the Germans. He'd been there to see exercises. He'd had many friends there. He, he had respect for moderate Germans and even moderate nationalism. Um, I don't recall, for example, him being objecting to Otto von Bismarck's wars, and they were wars, of limited character to expand Germany in the 19th century. Uh, he may have. Certainly, he said about the 20th century that Berlin was the cause of both world wars. He would write that. He would say so when challenged uh, directly by a German gentleman at Oxford in the debates in the 30s. Uh, he did believe you could point the finger to a cause of both wars, and he blamed uh, he blamed German nationalism for that, uh, and he was not embarrassed about it. Um, always on his mind, though, always on his mind, is bringing France and Germany 
together in some way at the center of Europe. He wanted them to be stewards of European future. Uh, and that meant overlooking past sins by, by great rulers and, and, and violent peoples. And he believed in magnanimity, and he spoke about it a lot. Uh, that word magnanimity is a fine one uh, and a fine virtue, uh, not an easy virtue. Um, the first time it appears, as far as I can see, in, in a really public way, uh, could have been right after World War I. A French town asked Churchill to supply a epithet, an epigraph, for a monument for the war. Uh, and Churchill wrote back with these lines, in war resolution, in defeat defiance, in victory magnanimity, in peace goodwill. But the difficulties with being magnanimous uh, showed through because that French town was un uninclined to accept the script that Churchill sent along. Uh, they just weren't feeling magnanimous. And it's probably because, as Churchill said in another context, in that country of France, at every cottage at its empty chair. So the words were disdained for the moment, but he saved them and he built them into his famous six books about World War II. And uh, he, of course, did follow the theme of magnanimity in his own life. Uh, a good example is uh, he had once believed in the partition of Germany during the war, uh, and he reversed that position and went against partition for the post-war period. To, to hatreds then and to a tendency of war, Churchill's view was always to keep working all the time to keep the peace. And in Europe, what that meant to him was a concept of the United States of Europe. Quite unusual idea. Um, one of its best spokesmen was an Austrian aristocrat named Richard Kudenhove Kalergi. Uh, he devoted his whole life uh, in the 20s and 30s to promoting this notion of a unified Europe. Now, after all the bloodshed uh, that continent had seen, we can see a few people chuckling about the prospect. But he kept working for the notion of Europe Unite from 1932 onwards, and so did many others. And in fact, we see it come into fruition in 1992, uh, even though even though the European unity is incomplete and, and may even disintegrate. In fact, the paradox we see now in the last year or two is really interesting. European unity is weaker than it was in 92 or thereafter. And one reason for its weakness now is, in fact, kind of the Churchill position on this. He was very reserved about it. Uh, he spoke often of Britain and a unified Europe. Britain and the unified Europe, which is different than saying Britain would be part of this new unified Europe. He kept a bit of distance there across the channel. Um, and uh, he once said, in fact, that the British and the Russians on the left and the right would be kind of bookends for a new Europe, unified Europe. So this is an area then which Churchill saw as defined by its struggles. Uh, with neighbors, with outside empires and such. And for the future, he hopes it's going to define, uh, define itself in a new way with unity. Uh, instead of an old cockpit of rivals, it's going to be a new power center on the continent. And it could then check a rise by Germany, or it could check a newly muscular USSR. So now we go to the British Commonwealth. Um, some of the harshest critics of Churchill, of course, start with his imperialism. Easy to do. He and his country were imperialist. Uh, he did tend to prod people when they argued with him about this uh, by suggesting that the so-called empire had really done more to assist the rise of democracies around the world than any other government he knew. Uh, also, of course, by the 30s, the empire's giving way. It's giving away slowly to the Commonwealth. It's devolving to a looser and more liberal form. Uh, for example, the Southern Irish are not a colony. They're a dominion. They have a strong parliament, uh, and in part because Churchill helped build that new Southern Irish state in the peacemaking efforts of 1920, 21, 22. He helped the quarreling parties separate. 
India is, of course, uh, entirely uh, subordinate, uh, and India has been demanding freedom in this period of the 20s and 30s from its colonial status, uh, and India is, in fact, achieving more autonomy than it had. That's the story of the 1930s before, before the war. India is a huge subject for foreigners as well as Indians. Uh, Roosevelt, for example, actually baits Churchill in a number of famous conversations about this, uh, prodding him as to when, you know, they would decolonize in India. This is interesting because Washington's position by 45 and 6 and 7 will be to let the French back into their old empire in Southeast Asia. But the Washington's position against London is pretty critical of any sort of sense of being a colonial power. Um, Palestine is the third and interesting case. So after World War II, Churchill's a, a opposition leader, and it's his view that the U.S. should now come in and help share the costs of maintaining the Middle East, of protecting the new state of Israel, of keeping the kind of coherence of the Palestinian area. He wanted uh, England to pull back some of its 100,000 troops, which were in Palestine. He wanted to spend far, few pounds, far fewer pounds sterling on this enterprise. And he was hoping for either U.S. help or he was ready to turn it over to the United Nations. But it was an interesting way in which a, a key part of the empire has, had, was, was changing. Uh, and, and to Churchill should be divested, perhaps. So in this war period of the early 40s, and as war ends, what is the British Commonwealth? We're looking at something that's a fascinating and completely unique entity in modern times. Uh, it's a rambling, uh, uneven place uh, with a lot of political types uh, visible. There are four known dominions with a capital D uh, attached to the crown. That is the Southern Irish Republic called ERE, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. This combines to be expansive real estate, uh, great peoples, powerful economies, large bases for conscription in, in acts of war. So they're important territories. But the essential power of this is less empire than it is moral strength and the kind of bonds of tradition that hold it all together. It's a very unusual structure. So Southern Ireland, for example, outright remains neutral during the war, which makes Churchill uh, semi-crazy at some points. Uh, even after war ended in May 45 in Europe, uh, he slams them in a, in a broadcast for, for Dublin for, for remaining on the outside of the whole war effort. Of course, lots of Southern Irish themselves did fight in the war as individuals, but the government uh, was neutral. Uh, there are uh, plenty of meetings in London and other places of those from the Dominions, and they do contribute greatly to the war effort. Uh, the Prime Minister, the Minister of Defense, both of them, both positions are Churchill's. Uh, in those capacities, he interacts with the Dominions regularly and they with each other in informal meetings. They do a great deal to advance the war. Um, uh, Churchill's relations with some of the Dominions are separately interesting. Australia, for example, a new man coming in uh, as war is getting underway, uh, John Curtin, uh, doesn't start out well in his relations with Churchill. He publishes a, an op-ed in the newspapers, which basically uh, irritates London by by suggesting there are problems with British war leadership. They're not paying enough attention to Australia. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, the capital may turn to Moscow, believe it or not, for material aid uh, and in terms of its own defense vis-a-vis -vis Japan. You can imagine how that's received in, in London. Uh, you've got a uh, English and British folks desperately aiding the Soviet Union to try to keep them in the fight, and then the Aussies saying they might go to the Soviets for material aid. Uh, it's really quite something. Um, the partnership, however, improves. And, for example, with respect to Peter Fraser of New Zealand, uh, Jan Christian Smuts in South Africa, these are examples of long-standing relationships with Churchill and really excellent uh, working relations 
uh, during the war. Uh, from the Commonwealth now, we'll turn to the Americans. Um, and this is, of course, uh, not any constitutional relationship, but it's one of great intimacy, right? Um, there are 11 meetings between Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill during the war. There are over 1,900 messages that go back and forth between the two leaders of government. Uh, we aren't in any doubt why Churchill uses the term at Fulton of special relationship. That's pretty clear. And in fact, there are, I would say, multiple wheelbarrows full of books and articles uh, which talk about the warmth in this relationship, the success of the Brit-American partnership. Uh, Roosevelt was a phenomenal host, and he was famous for being upbeat. Churchill was also well-known for his optimism, his good attitude. Uh, Churchill was, was openly friendly. Uh, he liked to tell stories about his mother, uh, Jenny Jerome, coming from New York. Uh, he was extremely good with the press. Uh, he really had a, a practiced uh, approach to the press. They didn't always appreciate his position on every issue, uh, but they loved him as a personality. So in early 46, for example, he gets off the boat in, in New York, uh, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, and he debarks and meets a lot of the press, and he's as practiced with them as any excellent comedian could ever be. He's absolutely witty. Uh, the press loved him in, in, in these kinds of engagements. So it all helped win over the population. Uh, relations on the military level uh, are known for their stresses, as in, for example, the memoirs of Alan Brooke. But in fact, uh, they go pretty well. They go extremely well for most observers and participants. Uh, they are eased by Churchill's warm view about people like George Marshall, uh, like the Office of Strategic Services, Wild Bill Donovan. Uh, his tribute to Ike, to General Eisenhower, just glows on the pages of his World War II history. Uh, and he attributes to Ike much of the progress they make in coalition war. And believe me, coalition war is a key to why this one is a victory. He says of Ike, for example, quote, unity reached such a point under him that British and American troops could be mixed in the line of battle. Large masses could be transferred from one command to another without the slightest difficulty. And at no time has the pitch of uh, the principle of alliance between noble races been carried and maintained at so high a pitch. Now, at the political level, the White House level with the presidents, uh, of course, the Roosevelt relationship is famous. Harry Truman seems to like Churchill almost as much as FDR did. Uh, certainly, they both have a lot to like about each other. And then you get the election of Eisenhower as president. So at the White House level, this is an exceptional relationship. Uh, there's a fine German scholar's book uh, named Churchill's Cold War by Klaus Larus, and it identifies his approach to diplomacy, not just with Americans, but, but with all, as, quote, personal diplomacy. And that's not a bad phrase because he didn't really have or follow a school of diplomacy. It's not easy to peg him that way. And in fact, while he, I think, would have loved reading Kissinger's famous book later called Diplomacy, I'm not sure if Churchill could have written or would want to write uh, such a book as Kissinger wrote. Um, he, but personal diplomacy is a good phrase because like Roosevelt, Winston Churchill really believed in those personal emissaries. So many of them are famous in this war, especially Harry Hopkins. These fellows often ran right around the foreign secretaries of the two governments, and they did it uh, at the behest of the principal leaders. Uh, they, they caused plenty of headaches for their own bureaucracies in this way. But both Roosevelt and Churchill liked the use of personal emissaries. Now, Nothing's ever perfect. This is a working partnership. These are separate countries. Uh, the British are the old imperial rival uh, to the American Republic. Uh, Churchill runs into some limits, of course, in his hopes for American relations. For one thing, 
the Commonwealth's quite protectionist in economic terms about what it wants the post-war to look like. Uh, for another, there's war debt. The British emerged from World War I with big debt. They emerged from World War II in the same way, uh, billions of pounds sterling behind the curve. So with Americans, they do have a considerable debt, and they're eager to get a new loan for the mid-40s, and that's not easy to do on a no-interest basis. And this troubles Churchill during much of his visit here in early 46 when he'll go to Fulton. A lot of the good work in this area is done by Sir John Dill. He's the ambassador uh, in some years of World War II. And then third, this bilateral relationship, which we've used the word special for because Churchill liked that one, uh, doesn't really develop in the period right after the war. It's deep. It's about as strong as two countries can be, but it doesn't go further. It doesn't actually develop. Uh, NATO did it no damage, but it didn't grow in the ways that Churchill wanted it. Uh, the, uh, there were unrealistic heights, I suppose, that the old bulldog fancied for this relationship, and those hopes were fenced in. Um, he openly talked, for example, of common citizenship. What a remarkable idea, joining the two countries in common citizenship. Well, most Americans in the mid-40s did not have, have that on their minds, and some would say it was downright undesirable. So if you got, for example... A, a board of newspapermen in, in the editorial board in some paper in Chicago, you are not going to find a collection of happy people listening to such an idea. Many Americans saw Fulton, for example, as a speech uh, calling for alliance, and they didn't want alliance. They knew that there had been something called entangling alliances. Their founders had suggested that we ought not be troubled by, and so they aren't ready for that, let alone a common citizenship. One interesting way on the military levels this shows is there is this amazing combined chiefs of staff between the two countries. It functions from 41 onward. It's still functioning as the war ends. And in fact, the Clement Attlee government in London won't terminate it until about 1949. But Churchill hoped this combined chiefs of staff idea would run indefinitely. So that's the word on Churchill and the Americans. The last thing you could say, of course, is that he welcomed the emergence of American power in every respect after 45 when he saw the great economic and military strength of, of this country. Uh, he welcomed it and he was glad uh, for it and he was sure that it was a force for moral good. And he welcomed the fact, for example, that we had the atomic bomb and especially that the British had helped us uh, work on that. Uh, he saw the bomb as literally uh, a revolution in world affairs. That's a phrase from him, which reminds me of a much later term in military theory of a revolution in military affairs, which I'm sure the atomic bomb is. So that brings us to the Soviets, who will be a few years behind till they have their atomic bomb. The slide doesn't show Russia, but that's the way Churchill would have would have titled it. Uh, Churchill loved anachronistically to speak of the Russians and Russia when he really meant the Soviets. Um, he thought the entity unnatural, and maybe the union of Soviet socialist republics is just a little too long and clumsy. Uh, Churchill once commented that the USA and the USSR are countries so huge they have to be referred to by their initials. Uh, when the new Soviet government uh, makes peace going back to the German period of, of World War I, uh, you know, Soviets make peace in 1917, Churchill's aware from that period onward what a troubling thing it can be if you don't have good working relations with Moscow when you're trying to position against Germany. Uh, but in that period, Churchill, of course, leads, he helps lead the Allies' intervention in the post-World War I world. So for 18 months or two years, the Allies have a lot of men in what would be the full USSR, and they're working against the red side on behalf of the non-communist or white side in the Civil War. There's a lot of material aid 
and don't think that someone like Joe Stalin would ever forget that. So it's actually fascinating that Churchill could do as well as 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 he does with Stalin in negotiations, in documents, in summits uh, with them during World War II. Uh, they both make efforts. Both sides try hard, and uh, Stalin and, and Churchill do do just fine. Uh, so-called Uncle Joe is also very well aware that in the late 30s, as the German enterprise grew in power and dangerousness, Churchill was among those people. He had no official office except MP. He was among those who wanted uh, discussions with the Soviets and possibly even a limited shared defense against Germany. That was one way he was going to counterbalance the power change in Europe. And then, of course, as is famously known, when Operation Barbarossa goes storming eastward, the Churchill view is immediate. Within a day, he's telling allies that, uh, aides, I should say, that, of course, now we needed to aid the Soviets. So that was the British position. Well, that's going to mean convoys. That's going to mean massive bombing. Uh, you know, the convoys could well have served, say, Singapore, which is doomed to fall, or it could go into work in, say, the Burma theater. Those convoys go to the Soviet Union and many of them are sunk. Uh, so that's a big commitment of things that many others, including British troops, really wanted to have. The massive bombing campaign is truly interesting. We can study it from so many angles, but what I learned most about in, in days I looked at it was that Churchill directly saw it as a way to communicate with the Soviets and to directly assist the Red Army's procedure on the ground towards Berlin. And that was a bit of a surprise to me, not just that there's linkage, of course there is, but how direct it was in his mind. Uh, he was always giving Stalin the figures on bombing of Germany. And he was always doing it knowing that Stalin would like it. And Stalin did like it. Um, this is a this is a tyrant who, believe it or not, uh, did laugh or or grin at times. It didn't shatter his face and make it fall to the floor. He he could be seen smiling, and once or twice when he smiled, it was because Churchill was briefing him on how hard he was hitting the Germans with bombing, because Stalin saw that as a war winner and he saw it as directly aiding the Red Army's progress uh, towards Berlin. So if this working relationships emerged then, and, and if they can hold summits, and I guess there were five in the war between Stalin and Churchill, uh, how does it go south? What darkens the picture of relations between the British and the Soviets? And I believe that the, the clearest and first answer is Poland. Uh, Churchill reverts to his strong anti-Soviet views in part because of the fate of the Poles. It's the single biggest factor, I think. He hadn't said too much too loudly when they discovered the Katyn massacre of Polish officers by the thousands. But in August of 44, he's absolutely furious with Moscow at the way they stand outside Warsaw during that rebellion against the Germans by Poles and watch the put down of the insurgency. Uh, it, it's disillusioning to him in the gravest way. And he argues with Roosevelt about the proper way to respond. And he's also unhappy with Roosevelt for not being stronger about the British position of aiding the rebels within Warsaw. Then finally, there's also a, uh, an arrest of a bunch of senior Polish officials. Uh, they go to Moscow on, on a mission to discuss a post-war governance and they're simply arrested and disappear into jail. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, that anger Churchill in a grave way. Uh, so Poland, uh, there are some other factors that kind of compound his worries, not to mention similar stories about many, many of the East and Central Europeans. Um, Roosevelt has made clear that he's going to pull American troops within about two years of victory in Europe. That's an unhappy news for Churchill. He didn't really expect it. He's watching this from the left, a rising threat, and now he sees from the right the American barrier to that threat. 
declining. Uh, and so the news is, is bad. The balance of power is, is changing. And this sense of American departure and Soviet encroachment gives him a most uh, unusual uh, sense of urgency, and it bothers him incredibly. This helps us explain, I think, one of the strangest things that Churchill does in the war, and, and the mor morally the most equivocal, I'm sure, in the war, which is his percentages agreement with Moscow done in October of 44 with Stalin, where he, he basically suggests there could be spheres of influence in Europe, and he tries to secure certain Western interests, especially uh, in Greece. Um, it's a very questionable decision he makes. But he's driven, I think, by the notion that the Americans are going to go and the Soviets will, will stay. Uh, there's also the other fascinating thing of the withdrawal of Allied forces. So there's a period right in late April, early May, when to suit political boundaries established in conferences, they Westerners actually remove their troops from a long band running north and south of territory, some 400 miles long. The West peoples like Patton's Third Army actually retract, they pull back on government orders uh, for as far as 50, 75, even more miles. Uh, that's a long front, it's big action, and it's designed to moderate the, the, the questions pressing everyone at the end of the war. But Churchill feels that withdrawal is a major mistake and he's not happy about it. So those are some of the backdrops we're seeing when we get to Fulton in in 46. And so there we are. We, we're, we're, we're there with him, with, with Truman. Uh, much of the world is watching. Uh, in the speech, he's going to mention the Iron Curtain clattering down. Um, he's going to say this, uh, from what I've seen of our Russian friends and allies during the war, I'm convinced there's nothing more they admire so much as strength, and there's nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. And for that reason, the old doctrine of a balance of power is unsound. So uh, Truman, he thinks, is a better realist than his old friend Roosevelt. And in fact, uh, the historian Martin Gilbert, uh, the official biography of Churchill, uh, seems to agree. He says there's a remarkable coincidence, uh, and he, he attributes some cause to, to the coincidence, that within a few days of the Fulton speech, uh, good things happen, especially Soviets announcing they will, in fact, fully withdraw from Iran, which they had once said they would do and then refused to do. So at Fulton, we see an amazing speech. We see a powerful speech. I mean, it suggests the, that the pen can be a very mighty thing. But notice the pen is backed by power, and behind the pen is a, is a wall mount showing two very good swords that are crossed, and those belong to Britain and America, and their pressures, some feel, helps push the Soviets to leave uh, northern Iran. Okay, we must now turn to the world organization uh, and Churchill's views on that. He sees British power waning. He sees the U.S. leaving. He sees all the post-war problems, of, which will be desperate. He wants for all the years of the war to be some for there to be some kind of world organization. Uh, he added, you'll remember, in the Atlantic Charter done with Roosevelt, uh, he added words himself about a kind of permanent system of security, and he clearly mentioned uh, meant a, a structure. So. By mid-war, the Allies are calling themselves the United Nations, and of course that will be the formal name of the organization that emerges uh, after the war. Uh, he thought it would be run, obviously, by parties including Britain. Uh, he called it sometimes a Supreme World Council. He sometimes called it a World Peace Council. Um, and this is striking, I think, that, that he uh, did want something like a world organization. We do tend to think of him as a realpolitik man. And I have tried to argue today there's some definite limits to that. Remember, he actually backed the League of Nations, too. He once wrote a pamphlet supporting the League of Nations when it was new. And in 1943, 
He comes to an important meeting with senior Americans, including our vice president, in the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., and he brings up the League of Nations in terms of his thinking about post-war, post-World you know, War II. He brings up the League, and he says that he supports it, and he said that uh, people accuse the League of failing, but in fact the world failed the League. So everyone agrees that what was needed was a more muscular organization, and this would be, for example, built on and would protect some regional entities that were going to exist too, like the Commonwealth, uh, maybe a maybe a, a, a Balkans League with Turkey, uh, maybe a Scandinavian League of some kind. Uh, there would be lots of options, but certainly there would be, above it all, a world organization, and regional organizations would not be discouraged. Um, interesting, this is going to include China, basically because of American pressure. And, and include France basically because of British pressure. We could talk about that a little more. Uh, so the New World Organization then uh, is a, a continuous occupation with him. And, and I'll turn now to uh, to some closing thoughts. Uh, my my slides nine and ten uh, bring us to to the end. I think there are probably very few history books that are as well named as Triumph and Tragedy. This is the last of his six great volumes on the war. Uh, he saw in May 45 in Europe uh, a tremendous power uh, and, and victory. Uh, he saw the war as still unnecessary, but it had become necessary. Now victory was determinative. Uh, it was going to liberate tens of millions. It was going to destroy the fascist states. It was going to lay the foundations for post-war power. All of that is, is important to him. He welcomed the Americans into the game. Uh, he, he was glad that uh, we had developed. He, was, uh, he, he thought that victory showed our power in a good light, and I think most Americans think so too. Uh, he was aroused to the tragedies of, of power and war too. Uh, this is especially true in his view of the USSR. You know, it's interesting if we think back to a great old book, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Volume one ends in a most interesting way. Uh, volume one by de Tocqueville in 1832 says that the world is going to be shared in the future by two great titans that arise at separate ends of the earths, the Russians and the Americans. And so we see now that happening in this particular war. I also think that the post-war reminds me of another early 20th century book of greatness uh, by Halford J. McKinder. His view, this geographer, made speeches from 1904 onwards. McKinder's view of Europe was that if anyone dominated the so-called world heartland, and believe me, the Soviets in capturing Eastern Europe do have that, that they would be in an amazing position of strength. Uh, so Churchill sees that evolution, but he also sees it coming not with a beneficent government, but with a totalitarian one. So there are many reasons for seeing the view of the war as a tragedy. Um, there are also some reasons why he's always the eternal optimist, and that's one reason people like him. Uh, he was always for peacemaking. He was for helping the Germans in their hour of defeat, and he had been after World War I, too. He said that Germany should not be excluded from this new security architecture, and it would not be. He also tried to advance peace by working closely with the Americans. He felt that we were a force for good and we would be good in international relations. Uh, and he always sought a summit. He wanted a summit with Stalin in the war many times. After the war, he wanted a summit with Stalin, and even after Stalin dies, Churchill favors a summit with his successor in Moscow. There are many opponents of that, including Eisenhower when he's president, but Churchill's view is for a summit. He always thought it would be good to, to talk. So looking at our last slide, um, we can't really say that this man is a, is a Lord Palmerston, um, who's, who's kind of famous in IR for saying, we have no eternal allies, we have no perpetual enemies, our interests are eternal. 
uh, Churchill didn't think quite that way. He was too sentimental to uh, uh, to about his friends uh, and too too morally indignant with his enemies to act exactly like that. He was also too militant vis-a-vis hostile ideologies like fascism or communism to be a pure realpolitik man. Um, and finally, he's, a, as we've seen, a real apostle of representative government, whether it's in the limited monarchy of the Brits or a more pure democracy. Uh, I always like that Italian letter I mentioned uh, from the wartime. Uh, I like, too, uh, a thing he said in the, in the Commons. He made a speech in the Commons, which is a lot like his letter to the Italians, uh, a real pay on to democracy. He says, at the bottom of all the tributes paid to democracy is the little man walking into a little booth with a little pencil, making a little cross on a little bit of paper. Great use of understatement. Uh, this is one reason this man will be getting a Nobel Prize for literature one day. Uh, but also doing that and that in, in, in the commons uh, and in such and, and holding such views helps us understand why Americans like this man so much and why the British like him so much. And in terms of his views of power, one of the things we can see in that short closing quotation is that for Churchill, uh, a Tory Democrat, uh, the real foundations of power start in democracies with with every man. And I'll stop there now, and uh, if uh, any discussants want to come on, uh, Major Brown will handle will handle the questions, and I look forward to the discussion with you of your own views on these subjects. All right, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Harmon. And uh, I do have a couple questions to kind of get things going. And uh, for everyone else in the audience, you can feel free to start uh, indicating you've got a question in the chat, and I'll, I'll call on any additional ones. So um, first one is just something I kind of jotted down in the early part of your presentation. But, um, you know, Churchill, you said, noted that statesmen were not living up to the um, to the level of the event they were they were surrounded with or challenged with. And I was curious if he attributed this deficiency to anything in particular or if it was more a, a general comment on mankind. Yes, I, it was a general comment on the responsibilities of power. And so, you know, if a state had great power but was refusing to take a leading role in world affairs, he, he would be critical of that. Um, like, uh, say, uh, Mahan, for example, um, he might look on a newcomer uh, with some benevolence until they go to the stage of making war. So Alfred Thayer Mahan, who was himself uh, pretty much imperialistically inclined in some ways, uh, Mahan was was rather benign in his views on the emerging power in Japan. Now, once they began snatching territories and, and making war, he wouldn't have thought so. But he was initially. He believed that states had, when they're great, they should be outward looking and they should take a responsible position in world affairs. And so he was always aware that in democratic states, which Japan was not, of course, in the in, in the early 20th century uh, after First World War. Um, a, a democratic state is sometimes loath to pay enough for defense, and it's loath to sometimes take a sufficient role in international affairs. And that's really what what Churchill thought. Um, on domestic side, I'm sure he would be similar. He would think that that a talented person ought to be able to really take a great a great role in in political affairs, uh, and uh, he was enthused about public service, and he always encouraged ambitions, um, as you can see in a wonderful book called My Early Life, uh, which is the story of his own his own life. Thank you. All right, thanks, Dr. Harmon. And I'll start going to the questions in the chat. The first one is from Nela Mengel. She asked me to um, ask this for you on our behalf. So do you think that the fact that Churchill's mother was born and raised in America was a, an influence on how Churchill thought about the concept of dual citizenship and and maybe also um, reflected how sometimes Americans sort of claim him as well um, as one of theirs? Yes, I, I really think that the, the premise of the question is good and, and, and true. Uh, 
he had um, he was often willing to overlook uh, some legal legalities to try to get anything more in the American alliance. Uh, the isolationist-minded or the sovereignty-minded in America who resisted these calls for a martial alliance and political alliance were, were correct. He wanted more than he was getting. Um, a lot of it was due to sentiment, and, and he believed in, in uh, the commonalities of, of blood, too. Uh, just in the way he'd seen Britain fuse Welsh and Scots and Angles and Saxons and all the rest into a nation he thought had a wonderful tradition uh, and a great political culture. Uh, he thought you could expand that. And I think he was very genuine about this notion of common citizenship. He mentions it in his papers. He mentioned it during the war when he spoke at Harvard. Uh, and he very often made remarks about his, uh, his, his American blood. And so that was uh, true. I would add one footnote. Uh, the, the notion of a common citizenship with France rose as well. It, it, it's truly a strange moment, but his views in 3940 are so extreme as to the danger of France and the, his desire to make sure France survives against the German threat that as it's collapsing, he and some others actually put together the idea of a joint French-British citizenship. They actually consider fusing the countries. Um, the idea is packaged and, uh, and, and put on an airplane, uh, but, but then France falls so quickly that it can't be realized. I found one line in Churchill after the war which suggests a, a bit of amusement about the idea. But in fact, at the time, it was a serious political effort. And with a few more weeks here and there uh, and more support from the French than it got, uh, it could have actually passed through. So that, too, was a kind of a desperation moment. Uh, the American-British combination would have been one for the ages, one for the future. And he would have, he, he would have thought of it as the fusion uh, of yet another fine state with London. That's it. Right, thank you. And I certainly had no idea about that that French-British fusion option out there. That's an interesting historical what if. Um, all right. So next question is from Aaron. And I'm sorry, I don't have a last name on the guest list. But Aaron, are you, are you able to ask your question directly? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Chris. Aaron Danis. Uh, so, <laughs> how you doing? So um, I had to find – there's so many of these uh, online systems, and they all have the microphone in a different place. Um, my question was this. If Churchill magically popped back alive today, what would he think of the alliance um, with, the, with the United Kingdom? Would he be uh, happy with it? Where would he find it lacking? Where would he find that things had maybe improved since his time? Yes, yeah. um, I think the uh, I think he would he would want enhancements, but I think he would not be unsatisfied. Um, as the war ends in '45 um, and people start thinking ahead about a European defense community, he wants to stay outside that structure, and we see that they do, and um, we we, um, we we see that uh, that the notion of a unified Europe is not one in which uh, London is going to be in fully. Uh, they're going to be a supporter more than a participant. But as NATO comes along, uh, I think he was very pleased about the creation of NATO because it, it, it underscored the kind of transatlantic alliance in which he believed, and it links British interests directly with those of Washington. And so there's such power to be had in that. And you see it on so many levels, especially the, you know, the sharing of secrets, um, what, what, what a modern, a modern uh, analyst talks about of, of the five eyes relationship and intelligence and in so many other ways, the kind of collaboration. And I think he would have been uh, very pleased that he could, he could help build that kind of, of relationship. So. Uh, I, I, without trying to venture what he might have thought about any given political problem out there, I think he'd be pleased that this alliance has stayed as long as it did. I know he'd be intrigued with the question of whether it can survive the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, it did, and many generals and, and statesmen think they're glad it did. And uh, I suspect he'd be very glad that NATO is a continuing enterprise 
and is not just a military anti-Soviet function. Thank you very much. All right, and thank you, Dr. Harmon. And then, uh, so I just had one more question that kind of popped in my head, and then barring any further questions in the chat, um, we're at the, it's been about an hour, so we'll probably wrap it up after this, but um, I, I was wondering your thoughts on, uh, you know, Churchill could, he, the, the threat of, um, you know, a rising Germany, there was a very obvious kind of militant component to it. You know, it's very easy to point and say they're, they're taking over territories with armed forces. Um, and and expanding, how do you think he would approach the the what do you want to call it gray zone or hybrid or the soft approach of of other competitors today, where you don't necessarily have you know a uh, you know people in gray uniforms marching over a border, but you have more economic encroachment, um, political encroachment, even you know media influence encroachment to achieve those objectives. Um, how do you think he, he would sort of approach that and try and push back against it? Uh, it's, a, it's a hard question and a good one. I think in many cases in the post-World War II era, Major Brown, he was uh, pretty worried about um, the use of troops abroad, and he had a fairly conventional view about, about violence abroad. Um, he uh, was was uh, loath to see the U.S. get in too deep in Vietnam, for example. Um, I think, however, on the soft power side, uh, he's one of the great, the greatest uh, and most inspirational figures we've seen in, in modern history. Uh, he really understood public diplomacy with a seriousness and depth that I think even many American public servants don't now. Uh, he was better at it, but he also saw the viability in it. Um, during, in other words, during the war, he did try to set Europe ablaze with his special operations executive and all, but it did not really go very well most of the time. And in the post-war period, he showed a certain reluctance to do some of the forcible things uh, that the limited war uh, folks or the gray area operations proponents would do. But on the side of, of uh, rhetorical, cyber, radio, press, uh, public diplomacy, high-level diplomacy, economic pressures, all of those, he would have been all in uh, for different, you know, forms of, of conflict short of war, uh, but perhaps less with respect to uh, the sponsoring overseas uh, guerrilla fights. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Harmon. And, uh, okay, it looks like we're at the end of our questions there on the chat. And like I said, we're about at over an hour now. So, um, Dr. Harmon, thank you for coming back again. We sort of come full circle now after we started this thing about a year ago. Um, so we're, we're glad that the, uh, that the cycle has continued and we're able to keep having our brand shares here to support the, the broadcast. Uh, thank you everyone to the audience who took time out of today to come and join us. And, uh, I'll try to have this posted, um, over the next, few days on our YouTube and our various podcast channels to revisit and to share out with anybody you think would benefit from the series. So our show is going to be on a little mini spring break for a couple of weeks, but we will be back in April to cover topics uh, on a very wide range of uh, themes, such as operational energy in expeditionary advanced space operations to the One Belt, One Road initiative in the Suez Canal. Very timely topic. Um, promise we didn't do anything to, uh, you know, in the canal to make that happen. And then uh, comparing the Marine Corps' new tentative manual for expeditionary advanced space operations with its older siblings, the older tentative manuals from the World War II era, and more. So we hope to see you all back here next month. Thank you. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.